Hello. These days, mental health is at the forefront of all of our minds. But what we are also seeing is that it's those very people who help us get better when we're sick who are struggling with the worst effects of this particular crisis. In this series, we'll be exploring how mental illness is rising amongst healthcare professionals faster than any other sector of society. And we'll also look at ways that brilliant people around the world are finding new ways to help those who help us. Welcome to the Healing the Healers podcast series with me, Dr. Tapas Mukherjee, Medical Director at the Havas Links Group. And hello from me, Dr. Freddie Lewis, Senior Medical Advisor at Havas Links Group, as we discuss what we in the wider healthcare community can do about it. With special guests from around the UK, mental health experts, and great minds from across the Havas network itself, this series promises to be insightful, emotional at times, and above all else, a timely reminder that mental health challenges can affect any one of us. This podcast will contain references to suicide and mental illness, which may distress you or stir up some unwelcome emotions or memories of mental health issues. So listener discretion is advised if you believe you may be affected. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. Today we're joined by none other than our own CEO and great leader, it's uh, Claire Knapp. So um, hi Claire, thanks for joining us as well. Hi Tap, thanks for having me today, appreciate your time. As we all know, burnout is a huge problem and something that um, lots of people are talking about. But let's go specifically into why does this matter so much to each one of us uh, and particularly have us links. So Freddie, Claire, over to you guys. What, 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 do you, what comes to mind when we talk about burnout? I mean, I think from my side, we're, we're currently witnessing the fastest deterioration in HCP wellbeing in history. Uh, and it'd be remiss of, of us as a healthcare communication company not to be talking about it and trying to do something about it. And I think it's going to take a full collective effort of everybody kind of coming together to be able to tackle such a, a huge and prominent issue that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really exciting to be working on this just because it's something that I sort of recollect almost at a visceral level from my work when I was back working in hospitals and it was such an unpleasant experience it was such uh yeah such a horrible thing to go through it feels really nice to be part of uh being able to make some change um so I'm I think it's great that we're talking about it and I think it's amazing how it's such a good time as well as we start to um view these kind of issues as being things that we can talk about and start to do things about. So it's a good time. Mm. So Claire, you mentioned uh, a moment ago that it would be silly of us not to get involved, but obviously this is a problem uh, that has been building over many years, even before the pandemic. So what do you think is becoming more apparent now or what's changed in that, um, you know, we're so much more aware of it and what is it particularly that is, is making it the right moment for us to start taking action? Yeah, I think as you mentioned, this isn't necessarily a new problem, but it is certainly a problem that's now at a critical level. Uh, we very recently launched a new data offering around HCPs, really understanding more about them on a psychographic level as well as a media level. Um, and some of the stats that immediately jumped out to us started to give us a little bit of an understanding of the level of the problem. Um, just, just to start putting it into context, we saw that uh, on average, HCPs are experiencing 38% more negative emotions in the last week compared to the general 
general population. Um, one of the ones that really stood out to me that was 81% of oncologists in the UK felt distressed last year. Yeah, 81% is such a huge stat. Uh, this is this is a hugely prevalent problem. It's a borderless problem that we're seeing across multiple different countries, and, and it's leading not just to burnout, but the level of depression and you know heartbreakingly even the level of suicide that we're seeing in healthcare professionals at the moment is is massive and it's it's something that we've we've got to do something about we can't let this this trend continue you know one of the things that um really surprises me is is and i know you'll probably have a thought on this as well freddie but um the the fact that we're seeing stats now on not just suicide but um post-traumatic stress disorder um people being afraid to go to work I suspect all of these things were there in some way when we were working five, six years ago, but perhaps the pandemic's just accelerated it. But for whatever reason, like I, f- I find the idea that your work can be a form of PTSD, you know, like horrifying, scary. Yeah, thanks, Tap. And I think you're absolutely right. It is a feeling more than a memory almost. It's a visceral experience. You can sort of transport yourself back there um, very easily. And I think when you think of the definition of burnout, um, which it's probably helpful for me to talk it through a little bit now, but sort of chronic workplace stress, it's not being successfully managed and it's got proper symptoms. It's, it's an, very experiential. It's feelings of energy depletion, exhaustion, mental distance from one's job, um, feelings of negativity um, and cynicism. Um, and reduced professional efficacy. Mm. And when you think about all of that happening on a sort of chronic scale day by day, um, that really has huge impacts, huge impacts. I mean, you've been, uh, I know we all have been looking into this, but you particularly were looking into the science behind that, some of the cognitive changes that can happen, some of the changes in the in a sort of brain level. Um, what do you remember? What sticks, what stood out to you when you were doing that reading? Yeah, quite. Because I mean, we were really keen to work out, you know, what are the full plethora of negative effects or, or impacts from this state? And so we looked at the individual and kind of what's going on in the brain. And there's loads of rich research around how it affects our actual decision making. So not only is it just not very nice for the person or it might be associated with outcomes and poor outcomes we'll come to in a minute, but there's, you know, there's, there's, there's actual change at the prefrontal cortex, you know, so our thought, action and emotion is all distorted. Um, abstract reasoning, decision making, insight and planning, all of these things are impacted. And of course that, you know, when you're in the midst of um, a complex clinic or A&E or intensive care unit or medical unit, whatever, you know, to have something constantly Affecting mm. your decision making in that way is mm. obviously terrible, really. Um, um, so it's really that it's wide ranging, you know. And when I think about it, you know, your ability to manage all of those different competing issues that are coming into you, whether it's clinical decisions, whether it's the communicational skills about being professional with your colleagues, all of that gets influenced. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, the the effects are palpable and severe for the yeah. for the individual. I, think, I, I mean, I remember um, seeing something moment. about the the fact that stress can 
not just reduce motivation and cause fear and all the things that you would think, but also just directly lead to more unprofessional behaviour, which kind of feeds into, mm. uh, I suppose, we, it brings us on to maybe some of the cause, causes. Um, you know, I'll, I'll kick it off with one of the things that I, you know, stands in my mind, that there's a real problem with behaviour among colleagues, trust among colleagues, um, when, you're, when you're looking at areas that are affected by burnout. Um, some of the other ones that sort of, you know, perhaps more obvious, the work-life balance always being tipped towards obviously favouring work, but that has only gotten worse since COVID and the shift to remote working. Um, so, you know, once it was hailed as this great technological advance, but it's actually this rather horrible double-edged sword that the amount of work now that it brings in the physical world and the remote world um, is adding to this problem. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I was I was having a conversation with a client the other day uh, where we were really just observing the fact that for a lot of healthcare professionals that went into a virtual working environment during pandemic, coming back face-to-face hasn't necessarily mean that's just a switch back to in, in-person interaction. It's really doubled that volume. You've now got both the virtual workload and the in-person uh, workload uh, which which is obviously having an impact on uh, cognitive burden and and as you say that work-life like work-life balance I think on the cognitive burden point as well we've got to take a second to really think about the volume of data and new information that we're asking healthcare professionals to to digest and take into account when they're making clinical decisions uh, there was a report done uh, that looked at the time it took for medical information to double. You know, it used to be 50 years, and now that's doubling every 73 days. You know, it's impossible for any individual to keep track with that kind of new information and new data coming through, particularly one that's spending so much time invested in inpatient care and patient communication. Yeah, absolutely. And you combine that with the fact that we know that patients are increasingly acute. So... That the intensity of the work they're doing on the ground as well mm. around, um, you know, it used to be, and this is always a point that always makes me really annoyed, but my, I'm from a long line of doctors and my dad and my grandmother's generation, they always say, oh, we used to work weekends, weekends after weekends and all the, all these hours. But the thing is the intensity was different. A lot of their patients were convalescing on the wards, whereas now we know Patients are hyper-acute. Um, they're only in hospital when they absolutely need to. And as soon as their acuity drops off, they're in the community being managed. So people in hospitals are dealing with a far sicker population than they did previously. Which I, I suppose also maybe plays into then that recognition reward that HCPs are, are experienced right now. You know, it used to be, and we touched on this in the introduction, but it used to be that the doctor's word was final and there was almost a revered status to being a doctor whereas now I think with Dr Google and as you say that more acute more risky patient base uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to get better and better outcomes and I think the expectation now is almost curative intent across every therapy area which is impossible to keep track which is maybe why there's there's such a huge increase in the amount of litigation that we're seeing mm. in medical cases at mm. the moment which of course is, is only going to further impact the the state of the HEP. The thing that I remember clearly from my wife uh, describing it every evening as she was coming back th- from the pandemic to now is how 
the public's expectations have changed, exactly as you're saying. So from being extremely grateful and, and humble, they've now become, well, you know, mass generalization here, but a little bit more demanding in waiting areas and um, happier to, to sort of uh, talk back to the doctor and, and so on. And obviously, it, it's a great thing to have patients who feel they can speak to a doctor, but I don't think it's been helped by uh, negative portrayals in the media, um, perhaps sort of enabling people to be a bit more critical at a time when doctors are already incredibly stretched. And obviously also catching up with that backload of work from um, many days of having to work remotely and, you know, cancelled operations and deferred waiting lists and so on. All of that, plus the acuity that you're talking about, Freddie, um, you know, makes the job uh, obviously... uh, super super busy and to the point of being unmanageable now yeah well i mean even in our own data tap we had you'd think when you look at the key stresses behind hcps it would be workload it would be that cognitive burden but from our data we saw actually when you do a regressional analysis to really look at what is the biggest stresses in uh, in the day job it was coming in at media attention and adverse media attention on on doctors is is clearly contributing to the to the state of burnout that we're seeing at the moment I mean, on that note, I can fully attest to the the stress that the media can cause. Um, I remember when I was lucky enough to be involved with a um, nationally awarded educational program that I was able to lead. Um, the story appeared in a very negative way in a well-known tabloid newspaper. And it's amazing how quickly it can change your perspective on your own sort of um, your own skill set. Uh, one day I was a fairly confident doctor riding pretty high and the next day I was questioning all sorts of things and feeling particularly vulnerable uh, for simple things such as the colour of my skin uh, based on some of the comments I was reading um, in the media at the time. Um, so, you know, I can I can well imagine that is one of the high stresses. Yeah, because that tracks then to the, what we're seeing where burnout levels are higher in minority groups and and with women as well uh, with that additional kind of cultural challenge as well that we're seeing yeah and I think that would be a really good time for us to discuss some of the barriers as to why people can't seek help or why things haven't improved in this area Um, you know we've touched a lot on sort of perhaps some of the cultures that can exist within the healthcare system which are perhaps unhelpful Um, be it you know a history of kind of stiff upper lip you know this is sort of par for the course um these kinds of um uh, cultures which are just so prevalent within medical hierarchy and teaching culture Mm. um and then also just general um cultures present in society that are perhaps amplified even more so in in medicine i know that um we like to think that sort of stigma around mental health problems or admitting, you know, that you're having struggles is something which is a problem in general society. But it's far, far worse in my experience. I remember um, reading something particularly heartbreaking, but then at the same time, it, it you know, resonated strongly with my own experience, uh, I suppose, is the idea that you're ill and you know you want a break, but you don't want to let the team down and you go to work knowing that you shouldn't. And and we saw that again and again. Um, But also from personal experience, that's when you're most likely to, uh, you know, cause an accident or make a mistake uh, because you're not thinking clearly and you're not functioning as well as you normally would be. 
But this sort of feeling that you just must keep going no matter what. Um, it's what I used to call like the army culture, but I think it's now just the mm. NHS culture. It's just healthcare culture, isn't it? And I remember when I was a house officer, there was no worse insult or observation that someone could make of you than if you were acopic. Mm. That was to be feared amongst all other things. Mm. You know, you'd That's always so rather have a medical error than be told that you're acopic. It's really true. Yeah, it's a really good point. Which is, which is maybe because it feels so ironic that an institution that's built on health uh, has so overlooked one of the biggest health challenges we're facing today, which is the mental health of our, of our doctors. But you say those kind of socio-cultural barriers stand mm. so tall in, in stopping our doctors and, and nurses and healthcare workers from reaching out and and getting the care that, that's needed. I think there was a report done by Medscape recently, you know, they do a burnout report every year. And the top drivers towards, sorry, top barriers towards going to get uh, help were around the perception of what it would mean to mm. their colleagues that it looked like they were failing. And, and there's this weird link of feeling that burnout is somehow associated to the ability to do the job or mental health is is somehow associated to their their competence, um, which is something we're going to have to break through if we're going to try and reverse this trend. Mm-hmm. I remember we had juniors in our team who were keen at the end of the day, sort of in a couple of years, to to have consultant posts in the same region. And as a consequence, they wouldn't admit that they'd had any problems or that there was even an issue because they were just worried that it would affect that ability to kind of assume that role in a period of years. And you just think, this is craziness. Mm. Um, So unhelpful. Mm. And um, I know the profession as a whole have been saying it for, for years, but I think we're now at the stage where we are starting to see a real increase in the amount of doctors leaving the profession as a result and mm. and that's the sad thing that people can't ask for help so they end up leaving um as opposed to staying in the profession that they've worked so hard for and and that the countries you know n- need them to stay in um but i know from uh, you know another sort of point one sort of data uh, reveal that about a quarter of physicians think they'll be leaving direct patient care within the next five years and it it tends to be the slightly older doctors in that group but by older I only mean about around our age and maybe a little bit above Um, but they're also the group that are twice as likely to be involved in a medical error as we were saying you know uh, in in the discussion. To that point Abbas you know so we're seeing that mass exodus from healthcare across countries, across age groups. We've spoken about some of the drivers to burnout when it comes to uh, cognitive burden, working conditions. But do we think there's more to it? Is there other reasons why that satisfaction that HCPs have had for a long time around their job has has started to deteriorate? I wonder if one of the attractions of of leaving healthcare, um, and I'm speaking from personal experience actually, is is not necessarily the, the that the job is better but it's that the respect is there and I, and I think this goes back to one of the things we were saying earlier that the, the change in public opinion the the way that media thinks of doctors as free game for criticism continually and of course the increasing workload and the lower job satisfaction 
Um, I just think sometimes it feels like the culture is going to be better in the next place that you go to. And it, and it's a sad reason to leave. But I, I do feel that um, better culture is so much better for better mental health. And I've experienced that mm. firsthand. Uh, I imagine that's a big driver for others too. Totally agree with that, Tapas. Maybe, maybe now let's just segue a little bit into the impact of burnout into patient outcomes, uh, patient mortality, which in turn obviously has has a, a knock on effect on back onto the doctor and back onto the healthcare worker. Um, Fred, I know you you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, Claire, I think you're absolutely right, and I think from my point of view, that whole cycle is a really, really toxic cycle that can really escalate, whereby you know you're in a very difficult situation, um, you know it affects your decision-making, you have to game the system to a degree to be able to manage under such pressure, and you worry about the things, the, the fact you might be missing things or you might be giving suboptimal treatment. Mm. And because one of the downsides of having a very, very highly trained workforce who also have hold themselves to very, very high standards, is that when that violation starts to happen, it leads to a cycle whereby you start to feel even more cynical, even more negative, which then leads to worse decision-making, which leads to the, exactly the same thing. And so you end up in this cycle of decline, of moral injury um, and moral violation, which is really, really difficult to square um, Tapas, is that something that you experienced? No, I mean, I think that I think that totally resonates um, with me. I, I was actually. Um, it reminds me of something else that we got from our own um, point one research as well, which was that one in six doctors right right now, from you know across all the surveys we did, uh, spoke about unease from not being able to make ethically minded decisions. Uh, interestingly, there were some countries that tracked a little bit higher for this, um, and it's early days. We're still cutting into the into the data, but it was, across Brazil, Germany, France, and Italy, that that was particularly an issue. Um, so it wasn't just you know it's not just higher caseload and you know these simple things. There's some really interesting um, dilemmas that and and things bubbling away under the surface that are causing stress on, in, in so many ways right now. Because yeah, that, that same report showed higher levels of, of challenges and unease with our ethically minded decisions in Gen Xs mm. as well, right? And I think there's an interesting piece where you go, medicine has always been founded on this idea of do no harm. And they're almost unable to fulfill that promise given the stresses and the parameters with which they're being asked to work mm. and so I think it's it's natural that particularly the younger doctors who face a lifetime of of continuing under the same pressure are beginning to to experience that that moral distress and that moral injury from a from a younger age yeah and you know just speaking to our own medical student on um, her elective this week um, I remember her talking about how she's acutely aware of the high number of students now that are thinking that the job is already going to be particularly stressful they're already looking at what's their job going to be once they get their degree never mind even setting foot on the wards um, I think that was unimaginable at the time when I went to med school mm. it just shows how far the profession has changed from from those days when we were practicing and I thought it was pretty amazing, Tap, when we were having that conversation 
around the fact that she said such a high number of those medical students are using their medical degree as a stepping stone to another career rather than necessarily going into it with the purpose of being a jobbing doctor, which is, as you say, unimaginable um, only a few short years ago. Um, very interesting. I suppose that, you know, this all sounds woefully heavy and, and negative at this point, but it's probably important to talk about the fact that there is stuff that we can be doing about this. There are steps that we can be taking to, to at least begin to reverse that the trend of burnout and the, the, the trend of depression that we're seeing. I think it, it absolutely has to start by acknowledging the problem. I think there's been an unspoken rule of burnout in HCPs mm. for, for far too long and we've really got to look at it and and as a society and as a, a healthcare system really acknowledge that this really is a problem and it is impacting our healthcare workers it's impacting patients and and it's impacting the entire resilience of the system um and then i think from there we can really build into tackling the causes of burnout minimizing consequences we we talked about the socio-cultural barriers that are stopping hcps from really engaging in support uh, on mental health as well and i'd be interested to hear from from both of your sides what what or who are, are doing activities in this area that that do champion change and and do start to take the steps in the right direction that that's that's needed yeah i think that's um that's exactly right claire and i think the reason why we're all excited to be here is that actually there's a real opportunity here for our industry for our clients for the work that we do every day to have an impact on something which previously has just been off the table mm. um, and we have amazing resources abilities um, uh, capabilities to kind of make a big impact in this area I mean one of the guys that I'm speaking to is a really inspiring um guy who has started up a charity uh, that's just grown to enormous size really providing a safe space um, and um, helping HCPs to process some of this stuff um, together um, and the reason why I'm really excited to hear about that is because I too personally benefited from that when I was a uh, a doctor I remember we had um, structured sessions around this and it was probably one of the most effective things that I, I did in my career in terms of um, managing with all of these problems that we've talked about. So there's lots we can do. Um, Tapas, anyone that you've got lined up that you think will be able to help us with this, um, with uh, cracking this nut as well? Well, one of, one of the guys I'm really looking forward to talking to is, is Patrick. Um, he's uh, an NHS psychiatric consultant who's obviously got a lot of experience in assessing people's mental health. But he's, he's, he's taken that idea and turned it into an entire project that um, he's now running with NHS England Innovations Department. Um, and what it involves is he assesses mental health for entire organisations and comes up with personalised solutions and approaches on how they can raise their standard of, of care and resilience and training uh, at an organisational level. He's doing some really interesting work and I think that will be super interesting for anyone to listen to when we get to that particular podcast. But I think, the, like you were saying at the beginning, Claire, the, the fact that we're talking about this is the first step. People like Patrick and, you know, Aaron Deep that you, you're referring to, perhaps there, Freddie, setting up charities and their own businesses and so on is, is another step. But they all happen to be doctors who have been affected by this in some way. And I, and I hope the next step of where we're going is um, outside interests such as ourselves, such as industries like ours, where we have the benefit of 
um, you know, super intelligent people working here, great culture, um, you know, great collaborations with pharmaceutical clients. And just imagine the the power and the innovation that we could uh, bring to these problems if we can all get our ducks lined up. And and I hope that's where we're heading. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. I think we're looking at a challenge of such monumental proportions that it's going to take an equally monumental effort and response in order to to tackle this. And that involves all stakeholders within healthcare, uh, ourselves included. And on that note, uh, that's probably um, as good a time as any to to wrap this conversation up. It's been fantastic, revealing, emotive at times, um, but wonderful to hear everyone's perspectives. And I think um, this is a really exciting time for us all, I think, when we consider perhaps the fresh perspectives that we can give in our industry, in our business, um, and really dive into this problem. So looking forward to doing that in the later episodes of this podcast series. I really hope you can join us with that. So um, until we see you next time, thanks a lot for joining us. And thank you to TAP and to our CEO, Claire, for, for joining us in this episode. See you soon. Bye.